Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Today, Jose has Bergwijn and a big tonic, but it's bitter for Pep as Spurs do City again. Elsewhere, Man United point out move to Igaloo. Makes sense, given they're living at minus 38. And at Selhurst Park, another story of a man from the palace crossing the line with his wandering hands. We round up all the news that matters and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Morning, listener. Thank you so much for joining us, or afternoon, if you just got round to it. But here we are anyway, bright and early, with a pretty bright Premier League weekend of action and some other stuff as well. But here to tell us all about it, we got the uh, the man who wrote the book on speaking about football, Tom Williams. Good morning, James. Good morning to you. Matt Davis-Adams is also here. Hello, James. Hi, Matt. It's not actually morning for us, is it? Uh, no, that's why I didn't say good morning. Yeah. It just feels a bit dishonest. But... It does, doesn't it? Artistic licence, Matt. I think we'll put that down too. Also with us, Sasha Gurionov. Hello, James. Hi to you, Sasha. You're in uh, ebullient form. Oh, I just ran here from White Hart Lane. Crikey. Uh, a certain result having put wings on your heels, I imagine. 22 points now, Sasha. 22 points between Liverpool at the top of the table and Man City in second place. It is the biggest lead that a team has ever had in English top division history. Duncan Alexander pointing out, if you combine Man United and Wolves points this season, Liverpool would still be a win ahead of them. Sasha, it's done, isn't it? Can you say it's done? You're going to win the title? Can uh, I mean, you say it, that? It was done at Christmas uh, as soon as Ooh. City lost at Wolves. Uh, I, th- I felt that was the moment. That was the time when I built myself a spreadsheet trying to predict when Liverpool are likely to win the league. True. When's it going to happen, Sasha? Well, uh, because Liverpool have been overperforming and City underperforming, right. uh, it looks like it could well be at Goodison Park. So the next fixtures, you've got Norwich away. You'll win that, surely. West Ham at home. Uh, Watford away. Yeah. Bournemouth at home. Then Goodison. But that's uh, you need six wins, basically. That's the fifth game is Everton. So if... Man City drop a game in the meantime you'll win it at Goodison if you win all those games so exactly so, so in the intervening period City have either got to draw two games or lose one okay. uh, which seeing today's evidence I mean they just keep on wasting chances and shooting right. themselves in the foot getting sent off where they shouldn't be sent off and I think it's City's doing to be honest well it's also Liverpool's doing surely March the 16th is when that derby game with Everton comes up that would be of course unprecedentedly early for anyone to win the title. The previous best, certainly in the Premier League era, was in uh, mid-April, Man United back in 2001. This would be extraordinary. Are you slightly worried, even slightly worried about Goodison maybe being a stumbling block? To be honest, if Liverpool do win uh, the title at Goodison Park, it will be the most perfect of perfect seasons. Uh, But if they fail to win at Goodison Park, well, it's going to be a slightly less perfect season for Liverpool uh, than it has been so far. I think, if anything... Um, I know my Evertonian friends are getting a little bit nervous about the whole concept of this happening. Um, but from Liverpool's point of view, I mean, I went to um, to see West Ham Liverpool uh, in midweek and they're an extraordinary team to watch. I mean, of course, you know, you, you try to imagine what it'd be like for neutrals or even those West Ham fans. But everything that they do is so much more precise than anyone else in the league at the moment. Um, they are able to pace themselves through the game when they up the tempo, some a team like West Ham just has no idea what to do. You know, it's funny because we were talking when we were watching Spurs Man City about 
how many good teams there are, or how many teams are actually in good form right now in the Premier League, and, and we got as far as Liverpool, and then then what happened, Matt? Uh, and then we tried to find somebody else. I tried to make a case for Leicester, and we looked at the form table, and we couldn't really justify Leicester. Wolves um, were mentioned. Wolves were mentioned. I looked at the form table. They're near the very so bottom much. of the form table. Right. Um, yeah, it's one genuinely excellent side. And I think it would be a shame if if the narrative toward the end of the season kind of shifted toward the deficiencies of other teams rather than the brilliance of Liverpool because they are a genuinely brilliant Premier League team and, and should be remembered and regarded as such. I Absolutely. Think. What's amusing is the attempts by fans of Liverpool's rivals to suggest that the lack of suspense in the title race means that when Liverpool eventually do cross the line, it will be in some way underwhelming, which is tremendous clutching at straws from fans of Man United and Everton and all the rest of them. But when you've waited 30 years, they are not going to care. Obviously, to do it at Goodison would be great. To do it at the Etihad would be great. But it doesn't matter, does it, really? I think also, I mean, say if you look, take the Southampton game, Southampton played really well. Mm. They really disrupted the flow. And Liverpool came out second half and they changed up the game. They through in a diagonal, which no one probably can, else can play from Trent Alexander-Arnold that's set up, I think it was the second goal. And they keep on finding solutions, uh, which other teams are just not capable of doing to the same extent. Liverpool, a billion points clear. Thereabouts at the top of the table. Down at the other end, irons in the fire, very much as West Ham drop into the bottom three and uh, Watford are in some trouble as well. We'll talk about all those things. The, the other uh, big race going on, just four points now between Chelsea in the Champions League places and Spurs in fifth after that crazy game at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. That's where we're heading next. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Spurs Man City. Sasha, you were there. Stephen Berg won. What a, what a corker. That, that whole goal, though. You know what I actually prefer? The what? pass leading to it. Oh, Reverend Lucas Moura. Lucas Moura played that ball. Nobody else on the pitch saw that. Nobody else in the crowd saw it. It was just gasp. And suddenly it's completely the wrong place from what everyone expects. Right. And the finish was stupendous, of course. It, 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 he kind of just squared it, didn't he? No, he didn't. He chipped it while Ooh. everyone was pretty much I think, looking the other way. <laughs> All right. Okay. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm thinking too much into this, but no, I really, no, I really th- enjoyed I the pass. I thought it was a very clever pass because yeah. you assume when the ball comes out to a player in that sort of position that his options are basically to just sort of put it back into the mixer, mm. or they will almost always aim for the back post. So it was a clever pass, and it was a, a curious finish because the ball moves from his chest to his foot so quickly. He sort of deliberately chests it down. Ordinarily, when a player takes a ball on his chest, the ball goes airborne for a bit and then lands in a sort of gentle parabola onto their foot, whereas I guess Bergwijn, conscious that he didn't have the time or the space to do anything else, sort of chest it down onto his foot and he's kind of swinging his foot back, kind of cocking the trigger as the ball leaves his chest. Um, And one of those that, you know, sort of cliche klaxon, but it's in from the moment you hit it. Uh, And I I really enjoyed the look of just complete delight on his face. I mean, a face partly obscured by his hand because that's obviously his trademark celebration I assume but yeah a, a really kind of joyous moment yeah, like, unless you're a City fan I liked the pass I thought the goal was brilliant but the celebration was the best part of it for me it's one of the greatest things in football when somebody's so overcome 
with emotion and joy at scoring a goal. You know, in that circumstance, in a game being watched by everybody who's interested in football on your debut in you know such a great arena, fabulous for him. This is probably the moment that maybe got this new Tottenham Stadium going. For Mourinho, this is a huge win. I think for Spurs, like in the new ground, this is the big, big victory I think they've been waiting for all this time. And for a debutant to do it too, I think it's, it's fantastic. Right, looks a real prospect there. That was his first shot on or off target. It was Spurs' first shot on or off target as they do it again to Man City who had all the possession, all the shots, but this time having drawn in a similar fashion at the Etihad in the reverse fixture, this time come away with absolutely Zippo. What is it with City that this game, their previous game, which was also goalless, uh, so many other performances recently, they have had so much possession, they have had so many chances, and they haven't had the goals. It's a, it's a strange period of the season for them in the Premier League, definitely, as as was alluded to post-match by Guardiola, in that you know they are clearly the second-best team. They have no concerns in terms of dropping out of the top four and, and no chance of, uh, of winning the title, so it must be odd. But when you see you know, Gundogan having a penalty saved when apparently he'd scored every penalty taken for, for City... Uh, before then, and they'd scored in their previous 23 away Premier League games. Part of you thinks, well, it was just you know one of those days where we could have played all day and all night and never scored. And another part of you thinks, well, Sterling's not in particularly good form. They're missing a lot of penalties. Aguero had that not easy chance, but chance where he could have squeezed the ball in at the near post, and that's not going in. So big chance for Gundogan as well. Yeah, quite. Yeah, when he yeah. when he totally skied it. Yeah. So I mean, something's not right, but it's it's a difficult thing to. To fix, I think, I actually asked Frank Lampard about this last week with Chelsea suffering from a similar thing and saying, what do you do as a coach? How how can you improve this in terms of your squad? And he said, well, it's just as boring as it sounds. You just have to do shooting practice all the time. But what you can never replicate is the in-game situation. So it's a difficult thing for a coach mm. to get a handle on, I think. As you mentioned penalties. One of the 14 shots I think that City had in this game was Gundogan's penalty which uh, Loris saved. Uh, should Man City actually have had another penalty straight afterwards, though? It looked like the sort of challenge that is ordinarily given as a penalty. There was obvious contact between Loris and Sterling, but I think what works against Sterling is the fact that he's going down before contact is made. I assume that's why the decision wasn't given. The best thing about that was Mourinho's reaction when he was reminded by his one of his assistants that Sterling was on a yellow card mm. for that pretty heinous challenge on Deli Alley from the first half prompting Mourinho to uh, race from race from his seat in the dugout and confront the fourth official which which was quite an amusing moment but Absolutely. no I think I think that was I don't think it was a scandal that City didn't get a penalty for it's, that it's, it's fair to not it's, it sounds a bit mealy mouth but the problem with that kind of penalty is I thought it was a foul and should have been a penalty but but Sterling was very clearly not going to keep the ball in play or get a shot away so it wouldn't have been a sort of accurate punishment for the challenge to to give such a you know a, an easy chance to score a goal for what was not going to be a, a goal scoring chance essentially it's, it's almost very satisfying to see common sense applied in this situation whereas often it doesn't but I mean, talking about Sterling and the earlier challenge, which was to me was an ankle breaker. To be honest, it was um, like I kept. I immediately thought back to Aubameyang and Max Meyer the other week. I said I thought this was more violent, um, and they reviewed that and didn't give it. I was very, very surprised because again, people see the replay in the stands and in the, in the media section, and it just goes and winces. So I'm surprised he actually was on the pitch in the first place for, uh, that long. Right. Surprise, surprise, Graham Souness defending uh, Raheem Sterling's rights to plant <laughs> yeah, yeah. his studs uh, in. Uh, Deli Ali's ankle, pointing out that because they were England teammates, uh, there obviously couldn't be any uh, malice involved. That might have helped Sterling's case in that Ali 
unlike you know most other players on the pitch potentially didn't react in a way that might have changed Mike Dean's mind mm. uh, and maybe he should have done uh, Sterling who may potentially miss uh, the next game or two anyway for City because he went off clutching his hamstrings as, as, as far as we can tell I mean, it, it all worked out according to Mourinho's wishes in a way that say the recent match at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium against Liverpool didn't but to what extent was that red card for Zinchenko actually the difference in this game it was goalless when he walked um, I think I think Spurs were about to start doing what they were doing against Liverpool which is breaking quite well, um, I also thought, you know, that situ- Zinchenko got booked in the arguments after the VAR incident. I mean, if you're going to do something as stupid as that afterwards, you know, I think, you know, you, you have to own it. But I thought there was a sp- 15 minutes of quite, quite a bit of City pressure that I thought was about to wane. Uh, so I think Spurs were about to have the chance anyway. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, there is, there is a vulnerability to City this season that there hasn't been for the last two seasons. And it's odd that, you know, you talk about them being profligate when they were the first team in, I think, Europe's top five leagues to hit 100 goals in all competitions. There's obviously, there aren't chronic goal-scoring problems there. But I think it's reminiscent for me of Guardiola's first season when they would have lots of possession but not always make the most of it um, and I, th- I think you know with City this season that every six or seven games they're going to have a game like this where they dominate possession where they don't make it count where they get caught out on the on the counter-attack and then all the problems at the other end of the team where they're missing players where company hasn't been replaced etc 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 rear their head and if, if City were taking those chances then those those issues wouldn't um, you know, wouldn't be as problematic as they are I'd say it's even worse I think it's at most every four games because City haven't won more than three games on the bounce at all this season mm-hmm. um, so every every fourth game these problems came to haunt them As for Spurs Matt they were 11 points off the top four when Jose Mourinho took over and the notion of them breaking into the Champions League positions at the time seemed fanciful but yet here we sit now, they're only four points behind Chelsea, who they meet in a couple of weekends' time. Yeah, 22nd of February at Stamford Bridge. Wow. And you remember the reverse fixture back in December that they had the chance to significantly cut the gap on Chelsea then and lost the game. So it's um, it's a huge one there. I mean, it, we've spoken a lot about Stephen Bergwijn and, and it seems sort of ironic that we're talking about a January transfer that Spurs have made which is going to transform their season which we all thought was going to be uh, the first crack in the relationship between Mourinho and Daniel Levy but they might have pulled off a masterstroke in, in getting him but mm-hmm. you know it's one win for Spurs they, it, it's not like they've been playing really well and been unlucky with their results so I think we probably need to see them a couple more times before um, before we'd say that yeah they're definitely going to crack the top four and obviously they've got a game this week which which other teams don't because they've got to play their FA Cup replay so what impact is that going to have when other squads will either be you know getting time off to go to the family or going away on training camps etc tell you now they've got to go to their FA Cup fourth round replay and get a result <laughs> unless you're Liverpool <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. a little bit of concern then at Stamford Bridge over the looming spectre of their former manager uh, now earlier on Sunday Burnley who never held the lead in a Premier League game against Arsenal wasted the chance to change that in a goalless draw at Turf Moor they had their chances they didn't take them it ended goalless here's a stat this is pretty incredible because of Optus Tom Ede only runaway leaders Liverpool have lost fewer Premier League games than Arsenal this season oh yeah Mm, yeah. Yeah. all the draws but you know what only Watford and Norwich the bottom two sides have won fewer Premier League games than Arsenal this season two sides of the Arsenal coin, Tom. Indeed, yeah. It is the, the season of all the draws for Arsenal. They um, eclipsed their 
a record for draws in a single Premier League campaign today, which was, of course, the Invincible season, 03-04, oh, when, they, when mm-hmm. they drew 12 games. That didn't prevent them from streaking to the title in record-breaking fashion. Um, and I think, I mean, looking at Arsenal's more recent form, that's four successive league draws uh, against Palace, Sheffield United, Chelsea and Burnley. Um, they're now unbeaten in seven games, uh, all competitions, but have only won three in nine since Mikel Arteta came in. And I think what that demonstrates is that he has done what you would hope a new manager does when they take over a struggling team, which is to make them hard to beat. Mm. The next challenge, the, the most difficult challenge, will be making them a team who actually beat teams. Well, he was preparing them for what I think he expected to be a physical game against Burnley by making them train with tackling dummies. The, the banter being that, you know, they've been using those at centre-half for the last <laughs> <laughs> As for Burnley, though, who are level on points with Arsenal, let's not forget, behind on goal difference, but level on points. Extraordinary stuff. They're, they're well clear once again of uh, the uh, nasty business down at the bottom. Yeah, I mean, they looked like they were potentially sliding towards trouble. Um, they had a run of four straight defeats. Uh, but then in the last three, three points against Leicester, three points at Man United, uh, and then a draw against Arsenal, which they came away from feeling disappointed they hadn't won because they hit the bar and had all these chances. So you, you kind of feel like that, you know that this this has been a very fruitful period for Burnley um, and they'll they'll go into the break feeling a lot more optimistic about the rest of the season. But it's, it's a bit of a mad dynamic down there though because Team Slide and then two wins, Bournemouth, um, which we get, we're going to get and two, two wins and suddenly the picture completely changes and someone else is struggling. So I, I think we've been on the show before trying to sort of you know look at who is likely to go down but mm. I, I don't think I'm bothering anymore because really? picture Matt's changes. Matt's already uh, booked Bournemouth for a trip down. I said that <laughs> Bournemouth might get relegated, yeah. But I mean, there's not that much difference or there won't be in a couple of weeks between sort of going for Europa League qualification and battling relegation. You know, you look at somebody like what's New- the difference? Newcastle. Uh, yeah. So what's the top points. seven, would it be for well, your points between fifth and 17th. And I, I think that is a reflection of the fact that this is, Liverpool aside, a pretty low-quality Premier League season. Right. You've got one historically exceptional team. You've got a Man City team who've obviously fallen back. You've got a few teams punching above their weight, Leicester, Wolves, Sheffield United. You've got a whole host of underperforming big clubs uh, and as Southampton have demonstrated recently as Watford demonstrated before they sort of slipped back more recently um, as Bournemouth might be about to demonstrate you go on a run of wins and you can go from the relegation scrap to a few points off Europe Right, I mean that, that cluster of teams Arsenal, Burnley, Newcastle and Southampton all on 31 points they are all pretty much as close to fifth as they are to the to the, to the relegation but, position But you'd say Arsenal have got no chance of getting relegated but you'd think well Newcastle you know a couple more dodgy results and they'd be right back down there We'll touch on the battle at the bottom very shortly Next up though Tom you went to the King Power and are about to tell us all about what happened there Join Ruby Walsh, Paddy Power, Tom Nugent and a whole host of great guests each week on Paddy Power's new racing podcast, From the Horse's Mouth. Tune in for analysis, interviews and a bit of crack. Ruby is the expert, Tom holds it together and Paddy, well, Paddy's funding the whole thing so he insisted that he gets to be involved. The first episode is available to download now. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Match week 25 of the season kicked off Saturday lunchtime at the King Power Stadium. Tom, 
you were there to witness a saucy 2-2 draw between third place and fourth place sides in the Premier League. Uh, at the Bridge Pod tweets us and says, did Chelsea find their backup striker in the form of Antonio Rudiger? Lols. Yeah, Antonio Rudiger, who scored two fantastic headers. The second one in particular was one of the best headers I've seen uh, in, in a long time. What was so good about it? So it was a free kick out on the left that Mason Mount took, same formula that had led to the first goal, a set piece from Mount header from Rudiger. And Rudiger is a good sort of 15, 16 yards from goal. There's not a huge amount of pace on the ball. Leaps like the proverbial salmon and a proper sort of like neck muscles being tensed. Are these mm. really tensing muscles? Yeah. Is it Andy Carroll-esque? Andy Carroll-esque uh, and he puts it right in the top left corner uh, past the despairing dive of, of Kasper Schmeichel but the fact that Chelsea had needed Antonio Rudiger to score two goals his first goal since October 2018 was a sign that the players who um, Frank Lampard would have hoped would score those goals hadn't hadn't quite been up to it Tammy Abraham who we know was playing through the pain of an ankle injury mm. squandered a few first half chances and as we've seen with Chelsea quite a lot this season they started the game very well very aggressive got forward well Leicester were quite sleepy um, but then didn't make the most of it and within you know less than a minute of the start of the second half they're behind bit of a topsy-turvy second half they come away with a, a, a point that's not a bad point but um, yeah not a formula that they're going to be able to use all that often I wouldn't have thought well, but they were playing Leicester you know who are above them in the table and are having by by anyone's standards um, a pretty decent season um, I, I think Chelsea actually played quite well in this game there's a couple of big selection calls from Frank Lampard right. to... so okay one of them and the, the bigger one we'll come on to in a second but first of all the fact that Tammy Abraham was playing through pain and Batshuayi didn't get on Livy Giroud wasn't even called up uh, that's slightly surprising or not? Or uh, well Giroud to... hasn't been in the matchday squad for, for quite a long time I wouldn't imagine that his fitness is, is particularly at a point where he'd be ready to take part in a Premier League game. I also think he's one of those players who's grown better in his absence. Right. Um, He's made a lot of substitute appearances for Chelsea, but he's also scored five goals in 45 Premier League games. Um, So I'm not sure. isn't is is not all about scoring goals. No, he's not. But the things that he is about are not things that are what Frank Lampard is looking for his Chelsea team to do. You, you need to be more mobile than Giroud is to, to actually effectively work in Chelsea's system, I think, which is probably why you, he doesn't You do, it. but like you also need a plan B when plan A isn't working. And, I think, I th- and I've long thought this. I think as, a, you know, as an alternative on the bench, I think Olivier Giroud is one of the best plan Bs out there. I mean, I t- you know, his goal-scoring record is, is not great and you know, he's obviously in a bit of a hump about not getting his transfer to Inter Milan. But I, I find the extent to which he's been frozen out at Chelsea, really, really surprising. The fact that he's not getting any minutes, that he's not even getting called up into squads. And this is a fit Mm. World Cup winning centre forward Mm. who um, is very adept at bringing other players into the game, whose previous strike partners have all loved playing with him. And I just think that when, you know, when there are issues about Chelsea's ability to take chances, I don't know why Lampard wouldn't have at least tried him a bit more is it a purely technical question Matt do you think or do you, might there be some issues no I don't think so I mean not not the way that um, Lampard has spoken about Giroud I, I think he, he could have um, sugar-coated something uh, more than he has if he if he actually had a problem with him I think he I mean he was he was out the door it, it, from from what I understand yeah. it was Inter he pulled out of the transfer essentially so they were planning for life without him and he was planning to leave so he hasn't been in the thinking so don't throw him straight in. But do you think, as, as Alan Shearer showed the cinema match of the day yesterday, I mean, is, is he, he obviously was slightly sugarcoating, but is Abraham actually a problem now? 
the fact that he is not getting in the right positions, not converting the chances that he should be perhaps making a bit more of. Because, I mean, for example, um, a couple of weeks ago, the Newcastle game, he had presentable half chances, which we feel maybe a striker should at least convert one of them into a proper chance, and Abraham wasn't doing that. Yeah, I mean, potentially, I think the the bigger problem is that um, he, he doesn't see Bakshuai as a reliable alternative either, and the evidence this season is is that he's right to think that, because in terms of the Premier League, he's he's been almost completely ineffective. So I'm not sure if it's Abraham is the problem mm. or the fact that there's not an alternative solution. Um, you know, we've got to remember this is this is Abraham's first season as, as Chelsea number nine and, and there was always going to be this period with players like him and Mason Mount. I think he'll come back fine in a couple of weeks, but he, in an ideal world, wouldn't have played this game because he had a heavily bruised ankle. Right, because Chelsea would have exploited the end of their transfer band to go out and buy some of that killer instinct that Frank's been banging on about for weeks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not as if that there was a plethora of top-quality strikers who were moving between clubs in Europe in January, is it? I think probably the options were quite limited, but certainly Lampard was very cross that he didn't manage to get anybody right. in during the window. OK, what about the other, the really big decision? The most expensive goalkeeper in the history of football sat on the bench. Yeah, and I don't think he can have any complaints because his form's not been anywhere near good enough this season. Um, Caballero's not an outstanding goalkeeper, particularly at his age, the oldest player to play in the Premier League this season, but he's a capable deputy. And if this focuses Kepa's mind to try and get back to where I mean, where he was at Athletic Bilbao, he's never been hugely convincing for Chelsea, but you've always kind of thought of him as, as early era David De Gea at Man United. And maybe once he gets used to the league a little bit, then, then things will turn for him. But um, it's a wake-up call for him, certainly. And, and it wasn't a surprise, which is the most surprising thing about it, I think. Really? The timing yeah. of it felt quite deliberate in that there's now basically best part of three weeks until Chelsea play again. So it is something that Kepper is going to have to stew over for a bit. And I suspect that was probably done deliberately. And I think because there is that break coming up, it did feel like a one-off to me rather than the start of a new goalkeeping regime. We saw Lampard after the Arsenal game. And as far as he was trying to control himself, I thought he was quite irritated with that second billion goal. And I th- I th- he, he must think that he should have done much, much, much better there. Mm. And I think there's general weakness about, I think, how Kepa plays, which doesn't help the back line at all. Leicester, still thirds, still, but have now dropped eight points from winning positions in their past four Premier League games. That sounds like an awful lot to me. And they've got knocked out of the cup in that time, the League Cup, by Aston Villa. What's up, Tom? Is anything up? Jamie Vardy has stopped scoring, mm. which Since is one he issue. he had a kid. Is it? Well, yeah. Mm. It yeah. is. Maybe it's those those sleepless nights. Uh, seven games in all competitions without a goal. Uh, he only really had one half chance uh, against Chelsea, uh, mm. Willie Caballero said, although he did tee up fantastic late chance for Harvey Barnes. And Vardy himself mm. actually had his arms aloft in celebration, as in expectation, Brendan, yeah. Yeah. as did Brendan <laughs> Rodgers on the touchline. Yeah, Leicester, I mean, they, they've obviously had a bit of a, a bit of a wobble. Back-to-back defeats against Southampton and Burnley beat West Ham, but then, you know, it's West Ham. Uh, and then and then the draw against Chelsea. I think this break comes at a good time for them. I mean, their, you know, their form uh, in the run-up to the turn of the year was so good that they do have a little cushion there uh, in third place. So I don't think there's any sort of great, great drama. Uh, but I mean, uh, yeah, you know, that defeat by Villa in the Carabao Cup semi-final, that, that will have will have pained them because that would have been a great and a, a worthy reward, I think, for the football they've played this season. Um, but yes, I would have thought that after the after the break, they'll come back firing on all cylinders. Still no Ndidi. So he tried to come back and he wasn't back for this. Was that in the warm-up? 
Mm. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I mean, right. he's been rushed rushed back a little bit too quickly. Okay. And, and look what's happened to Soyuncu. I thought it was terrible oh, in yeah. the first half. He's of this been game. terrible for ever since. Indeed, he isn't there. He's been mm. yeah. And, and, and Madison kept quiet by Kante, who had his best game in a while. So you know, we're talking. Indeed, he's Soyuncu, Madison, and Vardy, Leicester's best players this season, oh, all off the ball at the same time. I hadn't realised that Soyuncu's. Uh, first name is pronounced Shaglar, yes. which sounds a bit like a bantery nickname from Gavin and Stacey. Lester handed out a little pronunciation sheet um, with some pronunciation tips, and that oh, was really? on there. I've been saying Chaglar, I think. And it, it should be Shag- Shaglar. Shaglar. Shaglar Soyuncu. Uh, Sheffield United are in sixth place, just one point behind Spurs and a point ahead of the likes of Man United and Wolves. This after their 1-0 win at Crystal Palace, where the work was largely done for them, Sasha, by the unfortunate Palace keeper, Vicente Guaita. I would completely agree with Roy Hodgson. Can we just celebrate the comedic quality of his, his, his own goal there? It's As a Russian, we have been scarred by a keeper dropping it in in the playoff in 99 um, against Ukraine with two minutes to go. So this, this you know brought back many unhappy memories. But Guaita has been a huge part of the Crystal Palace well, relative success this season because he's the keeper who saves much more than he should. Uh, in fact, mm. most in the Premier League, uh, if you look at the XGA, uh, goals against, Palace should have conceded 10 more goals this season. And the only re- the reason they haven't is Guaita. And actually, similar thing um, for Sheffield United uh, because second best behind Guaita is Henderson, who okay. of course made that horrible mistake against Liverpool earlier this season. Right. To which Roy Hodgson backing Guaita, oh, he can't possibly criticise him, he's been amazing. Chris Wilder when Henderson did it <laughs> this kid thinks he's going to play for Man United one day he can't do that but right. look at his form since then how how quickly do you think he might be playing for Man United it's interesting I mean you know he, I, I certainly think he'd be in the England squad this summer but uh, in terms of Man United Day has got ages on his contract he's on massive money isn't he so they'll probably want to get the maximum value out of him good, good thing of course for Henderson is that he's probably what do you reckon, Sasha? At least five years from his prime as a keeper? He, he, uh, to you honest, go on look, until your mid-30s? Well, I mean, look, look at his quality right now. And the thing is as well, I think, I think he's actually got quite a sweet deal here because he can wait for the hair to go because Sheffield United would definitely have him for as long as he stays. And Sheffield United are a top-half Premier League team. Mm. So why would you even you know, bother with anything else? Uh, for Palace, meantime, fine though he has been between the posts, they are the lowest scorers in the division. This was the 20th time in the last 25 games that they've failed to score anything in the first half, for what that's worth. Ed Quoth Raven, who I think you bumped into in a coffee shop recently. Sure did. Matt uh, says, would anyone like to counter Matt's Bournemouth are in trouble sentiments with a word on Palace uh, and the fact that they're in relegation form with a knackered old squad with absolutely zero morale? It's, uh, it's an interesting take. On the Eagles, zero I mean, it morale. Is, it is relegation form. Six league games without a win. Mm. Only one win in the last ten. They're six um, points clear. Six points clear. And I think the thing with, with Palace is there is a sort of fundamental hardiness to them that, yes, they don't score goals, and that has been a problem for, what, the last two, three seasons, if not, if not more. But because, generally speaking, they let very few goals in they still manage to grind out results so I yeah my expectation would be that they'll they'll manage to keep the relegation zone at, at arm's length but it, it can't be huge fun being a Palace fan great atmosphere though you often get at Selhurst mm. Park going to the game knowing that the best you can hope for is like a scratchy 1-0 win because none of your strikers can be relied upon to score goals Wilfred Zaha isn't quite as effective as he was last season in that respect uh, and it is just a, a succession of kind of like you know grinding performances but that I, I think I suppose the, the other side of that coin is that that will probably be enough to get them 
you know, to get them away from trouble. But this is the crazy thing, whereby it seems, of, of course, Palace's style is more used, it's more suited to being away from home, etc., etc., and so on. But when you go to Palace, it's genuinely great atmosphere when they equalise and they, they push forward. You know, you feel as though they should be scoring more goals here, but for whatever limitation, they just aren't. Could mm. have been massive for them if they got mm. Jared Bowen instead of West Ham. Jared Bowen, by the way, goal oh, scorer. He's yeah. a good player. Jared Bowen, you say, who was top scorer in the championship since the start of last season. Is that right? Yeah, he got 22 goals last season alone. He got 14 or 16 this time around. They dried up a bit in the last month as he'd been touted for a move away and, and Hull's form uh, had gone south too. But yeah, really, really good get for West Ham, I think. And on the evidence of Saturday... Certainly needed, although maybe there are other areas for improvement. That right, Saturday, which saw them 3-1 up against Brighton, uh, with 20 minutes to go, a cruising effectively, no, and ending up drawing 3-3. Uh, Lots of exceptionally scrappy goals yeah. in this one. Oh, um, Scoring an own goal is probably my yeah, highlight. Oh, of but that's such a foul. Was very that wasn't enjoyable. even his fault, though. That no, was, surely that was... Not, but he's got oh, yeah, his name, yeah, so... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Punching against his head. But yeah, both of Snodgrass's goals were deflected in by Brighton defenders. But they were um, so well hit, though. They were beautifully well hit because Robert Snodgrass has got an absolute hammer of a left foot. But nonetheless... Needed deflections, and then what was the really what was the really bantery goal? I'm trying to think. I, I liked the banter wise. I liked the first oh, goal, sorry, the Diop was... goal, uh, where you hear Matt Ryan shout "keepers" as Diop heads it into <laughs> yeah. the oh, net. Oh my word! Yeah. <laughs> and then the second Brighton goal, which tees things up for Glenn Murray's uh, late equaliser, where the ball is bouncing on the edge of the West Ham box, and Ogbonna and Diop both sort of look at each other before Diop decides that he's going to attempt the gentlest back header <laughs> you've ever seen. And Pascal Gross runs in and stabs it past oh. the keeper. Uh, and then, yeah, you had that yeah slightly confusing equaliser that was initially ruled out for mm. handball because when you saw it the instinctive reaction was oh that looks like handball and I thought West Ham players stopped just for that split second mm. and I think Fabianski could have done a little bit better there as well mm. yeah but yeah great entertainment still you're two goals up at home to Brighton who've won one game in about the last year with it's 20 minutes road. to go uh, this is uh, what does this say about West Ham under David Moyes They've had six games without a win in all competitions. They've also lost more points from winning positions than any other Premier League side this season. That's not entirely his fault, of course, but for the supporters watching from the stands, there's little there to give them confidence. Yeah, I mean, the the new manager bounce lasted all of 90 minutes of that 4-0 win against Bournemouth, and since then it's it's been five league games without victory. And, yeah, I, th- I think as that this very knockabout game against Brighton demonstrated that West Ham remain a very a very patchy team um, and watching that I don't think you would have any great confidence about mm. their ability to go on a you know go on a, a winning streak a winning streak what are the chances of that looking at their upcoming fixtures uh, very unlikely I would suggest uh, Man City and Liverpool away or the other way around they've also still got to go to Arsenal Spurs and United before the end of the season and um, Suchek looks alright that's a, that's a little yeah. positive for them um, from this game but yeah they are very much in a relegation scrap but also I mean when things aren't going right for you I mean that foul on Fabianski for the first goal I mean why wasn't that picked up by VAR Murray's holding his arm There's, he can't move that's why it looks so absolutely ridiculous because cause he's being fouled there were I mean a few VAR shockers mm. this weekend sadly mm. once again but it's the West Ham it's it's 
whatever this counts for, I do think it counts for something. It's the mood around the club compared to the other team. You know, you think even Norwich, that there's a mood of, well, we might go down, but, you know, it's they nice being in the Premier League for a bit. Watford, all right, the results have tailed off a bit, but you can see what they're trying to do. Other teams around there, Brighton, OK, don't get great results playing good football. Bournemouth have put together a couple of wins, seem to have a decent spirit. There doesn't seem to be any positivity around West Ham at any element of the football club at all at the moment. Right. That, that feels quite dangerous. Or, or in the ground. I mean, oh, it's, it's just a terrible terrible place to watch football especially if your team isn't playing well Okay, we'll talk about some of those other teams how about Watford and their remarkable game against Everton up next you're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson now Moyes Keane has got a touch into the path of Richarlison and Everton are on the counter attack here Richarlison into the penalty and Moyes Keane he misses his kick can Walcott steer it home he certainly can and Everton have surely won it! An arguably Brighton even more impressive comeback than Brighton's at the London Stadium came courtesy of Carlo Ancelotti's Everton at Vicarage Road. The shots of the Watford fans on the, at the final whistle just stunned, unable to process what had just taken place in front of their eyes. Not just because Theo Walcott scored a goal, it was the fact that they'd, <laughs> they'd been, what, 2-0 up? And then Yeri Mina. Yeah, so in a kind of inversion of what happened to Everton in that game against Newcastle when they let in two stoppage time goals to a centre-back, um, they scored two stoppage time goals in first half stoppage time. Two from Yeri Mina uh, in the space of three minutes. And then, as Carlo Ancelotti himself admitted in his post-match interview, at 2-2, and with Fabian Delph having been sent off after getting a completely needless second yellow card for a foul on uh, Capu out on the touchline... Ancelotti are quite content with uh, with the draw, um, and then they launch that late breakaway. Moyes Kane completely scuffs his attempted shot, and Walcott finishes in to score. But interestingly, if you looked at the xG, uh, it was 0.89 for Watford to 2.72 for Everton. Really, which suggests that actually that was quite a, a fair result. A fair result. I suppose the the physiognomy of the game meant that with Everton going a man down and having come back from 2-0 down you thought oh god 2-2 will be a really good result here but but perhaps in actual fact it wasn't you know it wasn't the the daylight robbery that some of Watford's fans might have thought I also liked uh, Pearson's choice of words to describe those two goals just before half time and defending of, the, of them on them as regrettable uh, <laughs> <laughs> with a very stony face uh, right. because in fact it, it, some defending on those corners was, in fact, regrettable. Messina blocks Foster for the first one, and Katka just stumbles over when uh, when the second one is scored. And Messina as well, despite scoring, um, I think, the, the first goal, the, the, the third goal is also his fault because he loses the ball deep into Everton half and they get hit in the break. Theo Walcott, I mean, lovely to see him scoring. Is he a player that makes you feel a little bit melancholy? Yeah, because he hasn't achieved what he ought to have achieved. I mean, he's had a great career yeah. by yeah. most mortal standards. I mean, he's, yeah, but... he's had a decent career, but, you know, when he was in the... England World Cup squad in 06 at 17 yeah. you, you were thinking sort of Wayne Rooney levels well, scoring of scoring hat-tricks away in Croatia yeah quite well and, and there was a great he, his interview post-match he said that Carlo Ancelotti had relaxed him before the game by saying you know you are allowed to score goals well he'd also uh, been taunted by uh, the Athletics Michael Cox uh, who included him in this feature about 25 players who haven't scored yet and what they need to do to sort that out. And actually, he revealed that he subscribed to The Athletics. He, I imagine, read that. Maybe he got some tips from Michael and Bingo. Yeah, maybe. Um, on on uh, the Ancelotti quote, I do feel like Ancelotti's a really good fit for Everton at the moment. In like the, the last few managers, there's been this kind of 
almost mania around them. We've got to do this now and we've spent all this money. Whereas Ancelotti seems to have breezed in and gone, yes, you know, another job. It's nice to be back in England. We'll try and win a few games and see where it takes us and everything's just a bit more relaxed and seems to be going all right. I think that's the thing. I think maybe it takes someone like Ancelotti to just get the whole place to chill out a bit about just everything. Um, Because I think think Everton, by the time he arrived, were basically going off a cliff a bit psychologically. And only one defeat in eight in the league since he came in, which is what a, a new manager bounce should look like. Yeah, David we looked Moyes at that form heed. table, didn't we, to, to check out if there was another good team right now in the Premier League, and they were about as close as it got. Eight points off the top four. Remarkable. What about Watford then? They are now two points from safety, while your old friends Bournemouth are the same margin outside of the bottom three now, Matt, after their uh, very important win against Villa. Is this my Jeff Shreves moment where I have to apologise to Bournemouth? Um, yeah, I mean, they picked up a couple of good wins. They they played well in, in the game against Villa and deserved to win it. Obviously, they had an advantage in that Villa had had a really emotionally and physically energy-sapping game in midweek and Bournemouth had had a free week mm. uh, to prepare for the game. But they played a lot of it with 10 men and still managed to win it. So... Um, yeah, well done. Well done. Villa finally got a headed goal, first one this season. They finally got a Tanzanian player as well. Uh, but they remain the only Premier League side yet to keep a clean sheet away from home. Oh, Bournemouth's owners were wearing face masks to guard against the coronavirus. That, and I don't want to under... That seems a little bit... A little bit early scenes of an apocalyptic film, you know. <laughs> There's a football game and in the background people are already wearing masks. It's quite exciting. There is there is like an element of like Hollywood about it, but mm. it, yeah, I yeah, I don't feel so slightly you, unnecessary. I used to sell those type of masks oh. to uh, the building services industry before my time in football, and the ones they were wearing did not have adequate filtration on them to keep out viruses, so they would have been basically so skipping out dust so rather than viruses. Okay. What was your job, Matt? Uh, so selling personal protection equipment to uh, the building services industry, so masks and oh, ear right. defenders and uh, hard hats and things okay. like that. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I the mask for, you know, building dust, asbestos. Yes, exactly. Kind of so right. you have different levels of filters on the front of the mask depending on what nasties you're trying to keep out. But just from looking at those Bournemouth ones, coronavirus would eat through that. You're saying you were rubbish at it. it was like a downturn in the building industry, or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I was rubbish at it. Really? Yeah. Okay. What was it? was that the strangest thing you did before finding your calling as a football commentator? And uh, com- yeah, I used to uh, take sort of plastic film off warehouse doors as well. Um, I was quite good at that. But yeah, I worked in the call centre for that a credit was a- card. A vocation, company. actually, but uh, yeah, well, it wasn't for very long for me. But anyway, that okay. that vocation's loss is very much the football industry's loss as well. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, I imagine we've all done weird things. We, have you got a quickie when you want to throw in, or shall I? I, not, shall I move used on? to work at a place called Dinosaur World. Oh. Uh, in Colwyn Bay, um, I used to go there when I was a kid. I was a big dinosaur enthusiast as a kid, and they it was full of big. Roughly life-size but anatomically quite inaccurate models of dinosaurs. Wow, when you and, say uh, that, Tom, I can't, I can't help but form pictures. And uh, a, a, a soundtrack that sounded like a man growling into a tape recorder in his own bedroom. <laughs> and then uh, when I was a teenager, I found out one of my mates was working there. It was like a summer job. So I worked there um, like looking after dinosaurs. And uh, you actually had to dress up as a dinosaur as well a couple of times a day. Okay. Which dinosaur? It, it, controversially, it was actually a dragon. Nodgonosaurus. Yeah. yeah. And then there was an, then they got a new dinosaur costume, but the neck on it was so long that it would get caught in uh, low-lying tree branches. Right. So people just refused to wear it. Right. Because uh, you, you're quite a, a dinosaur, you know, you take them quite seriously. I, I dabble. Oh, unexpected treat time as we're joined by Nick Miller. Nick, why have you got 
ink all over your fingers. Well, James, exciting news. We're doing a book. It's the Totally Football Yearbook. Woo. I know. It's out on August the 6th, but crucially, it's available to pre-order today. That's a relief. Uh, so this is a yearbook, basically like, you know, the kind of famous football yearbooks, rounding up everything that's happened in this most story-packed campaign. Yes, but with the classic Totally Football show spin on it, there will okay. be uh, accounts of every Premier League team's seasons. There will mm-hmm. be also accounts of every championship team's seasons. Wow. Uh, all the Euro Leagues from our friends on the European edition of the Totally Football show. Uh, we'll also have stuff on the Women's Super League from our friends at the Offside Rule. There'll be a Scottish football section from JJ Bull from this Totally Scottish football show. Makes sense. And uh, some in-depth coverage of the Football League from Caroline Barker and Adrian Clark. Outstanding. Will there be quizzes as well? There'll be quizzes. Fun stuff. Fun stuff. There Pictures. will be pictures all over the place yeah all your favorite features from the totally football show podcasts and plenty more besides right sounds like it's going to be a mighty tome indeed nick it will be it'll be your go-to reference for the season just gone and looking ahead to the season after that as well invaluable thanks so much for stopping by nick miller no problem thank you very much james you're listening to the totally football show with james richardson there were other games taking place this weekend. They didn't necessarily involve goals. Uh, Newcastle and Norwich certainly had none. Uh, neither did the clash at Old Trafford between Man United and Wolves. In fact, this is now three goalless games in a row for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's side. He said afterwards, how many teams break Wolves down? Not many. Um, but I think as people have pointed out, lots of teams actually do he accused the groundsman of moving the goalposts as well yeah so, yeah with a chuckle yeah but feels like he's reaching a little bit at the moment mm. i mean we did wonder who was going to score the goals for manchester united in the absence of marcus rashford and we now have the answer and that answer is nobody right although new signing bruno fernandes did have a pop or three pops actually three of united's five shots on target were his mm, and he's he's what united needs particularly in the absence of pogba there is very little forward thrust Hmm. in that midfield they're very dangerously dependent on Rashford and Anthony Martial and when Martial's having an off day there's no one else in that team who you can rely on for a goal so to have a a proper goal scoring attacking midfielder I think I think it's a sign that makes a lot of sense and and you know from what I gather he you know he, he did he did have you know a big influence on their on their play in that respect Fernandez. And also I think it shows, uh, the stats show that the game's completely upside down because they had 15 shots, but 10 of them were from outside the box. Right. It should really be the other way around. Right. It's someone like him, though, whilst uh, bringing a lot of positive qualities, do they not, are they not the kind of qualities that require a different kind of mindset from his teammates? Um, I mean, Is United a team that he can work in? I mean, I, I don't know. I guess we'll, we will we'll soon find out. I, right. I think that... You know, I, I think that he brings United something that they have not had in in Pogba's absence, um, and yeah, I think it. You know, you look at what Solskjaer is trying to do to United, basically just turn them into a, a quite one-dimensional counter-attacking team, right. and having a guy like Fernandez who takes a lot of shots and who is a threat. Similar to someone like Ruben Neves, you think he was on the other, you know, the other side of the pitch right. uh, uh, on Saturday. That presents a new problem for teams if you know that it's not just the threat of Rashford and Martial right. and James running in behind, but there's also a guy who you can't allow to take aim at goal within 25 yards. So Paul Scholes is the analogy that Solskjaer himself made. Do you see that? I think he's isn't Bruno Fernandes a bit higher up than that, and also I think Bruno, uh, I think Neves is a bit deeper. But watching that game, I thought. 
this is the guy who's being brought in to transform United, which I think is a lot of pressure on this one guy. Yeah, it's not a, a helpful comparison to, to compare a, a Manchester United midfielder to Paul Scholes either, is it? Mm. After his debut, it's quite a lot of pressure. Well, he's not having to. Good. He's not having to turn things around on his own because there's also Odion Igalu. Yeah, of, which the, of was, the famed partnership at Watford uh, yeah. with Dini. Uh, which again, you look at that signing, you think, "Yo, United, is this is this what it is now?" Uh, I mean, I know it's a temporary signing, and but United signing Igalu feels like this would have been unthinkable three, four seasons ago. This is a Watford-level striker. They're well, it was to kind of unthinkable about a week ago when Solskjaer said we're not going to look for a short-term solution in the transfer window. I'd, possibly that was just a little bit of dippy stadio, as the Italians say, like just a kind of little uh, a little dummy there. But, mm. uh, but yeah, is it actually a, a decent move because he scored some Premier League goals before? And it, it will depend on how well he does. If he scores eight, nine, ten goals between now and the end of the season, we'll think it was a great bit of business. And it's actually quite risk-free because there's no commitment beyond the end of the season. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. They've got an extra body in. You know, because of his profile, because we last saw him playing for Watford and he's come from China, and because it's the great Manchester United, the tendency is to, you know, be a bit snide about it. But it's it's the sort of move that the big clubs have kind of stopped making in recent years because they've got so much money they don't need to take weird punts like this. They can just go and spend £30 million on whoever. And I think one of the successful things that Liverpool have done is that they have bought in players for not huge money. You think about you know Andy Robertson being a prime example. There was mockery of Liverpool for signing the left-back from relegated Hull when they did. He's now the best left-back in Europe. And that's been part of the art of crafting title-winning teams since the start of top-level football in this country. And OK, I'm not comparing Carlo's signing to Andy Robertson's in, in, of, in that way. Kind of hard, though, but it's, I, think that I, I think one of the problems with the, the level of wealth that the big clubs have now is that old-fashioned team-building has gone right. out the window. You can just go out and get like you know the best guy in whichever league you want because you've got the money to do it. And so these sort of slightly quirky left-field things don't happen so much. I mean, it, it's a bit of a gamble, but I, I, I think the risks are pretty low if it works out, it works out. And if it doesn't, then he goes back to Shanghai at the end of the season. And you know. But Tom, with Robertson, you're talking about this crazy thing as long-term thinking, which is exactly mm, yeah, what well, exactly, yeah, that's it. Which, which is not the situation okay, yeah, tonight. Yeah, find yeah. I mean, not, not, not an exact comparison, but that sort of thinking of mm-hmm. sort of like identifying gaps in the squad and, and you know not just going and spunking 40 million on someone. My other worry with Gallo as well is he was very good for a season and a half, um, especially when he was up front with, with Dini, but then as Kiki Sanchez-Flores lost sort of confidence in his system and tried to leave Igalo up front on his own or Dini up front on his own, then um, Igalo only scored three, three goals in a year before he actually was shipped off to China. Right. So I don't know if he's the type of guy who's just going to hit the ground running here for United yeah. and whether he's a guy who needs a partner up top. Well, mm. Worth pointing out as well, the Chinese Super League season finished on the 1st of December. So oh. he, he's not coming in fit, fresh and raring to go. You know, It'll probably take him a month to get up to speed and it's not like the Chinese Super League is the same pace or intensity as the Premier League. A little bit of midweek action for you. Uh, we've got uh, fourth-round replays, as was uh, touched on previously. Tuesday sees Newcastle travel to Oxford. Also doing the replay thing are Birmingham Coventry. The winner gets to go to Leicester. Cardiff taking on Reading again. The winner hosts uh, Sheffield United. Derby are up against Northampton Town. Oh, sorry, Wayne Rooney's Derby up against Northampton Town, which could be very interesting because the winner gets to host Man United. And Liverpool, Sasha, or kind of like shop brand Liverpool, will take on Shrewsbury. 
with the winner taking on uh, going to Stamford Bridge. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then there's also Spurs Saints. God, there's a lot of them, aren't there? Spurs That's Saints on Wednesday. Wednesday isn't it? Yeah, yeah that, that, they'll be at home to Norwich, whoever gets through that. Liverpool uh, taking on Shrewsbury. Sasha, where do you stand on uh, Jurgen Klopp's surprising decision not to turn up for this one? I think it could have been phrased a bit better. I also think uh, it is intentional to bring setting certain discussions to a head. Right. And as and as you saw, um, other managers have sort of been speaking out in, in support of Klopp. I think one of the reasons this is done like this is Liverpool's extreme frustration with how the Carabao Cup was handled. In what way? Well, it generally, it sort of EFL handled. And you know, remember when they went to play in Qatar, they yeah. had to play the day before. So I think mm. that sort of domestic scheduling certainly wouldn't have, would not have helped Klopp's patience. And I think also generally, um, the league is the complete priority for Liverpool. For of everything. course, but you're 22 points clear. The league is complete priority for Liverpool for over everything else, I think. Also, I think you have to bear in mind that Liverpool also have another three months of the season to play afterwards. And I think the way that the modern football clubs are run, everything is mapped out a long time in advance. Okay. Squad cohesion, suddenly you have three or four guys maybe staying behind helping the kids when they thought they were going on holiday. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think there's a lot of things to come into it. Of course, it's unfortunate for Shrewsbury. Uh, but I also think that if you look at how the under-23s played at Villa, yes, they lost 5-0 in the Carabao Cup, but it wasn't a bad performance. So I actually think Liverpool have a pretty good chance of winning this game, even with the under-23s. All right, Shrewsbury probably have quite a good chance of winning it, given that they didn't do too badly against the kind of half mm-hmm. a first-team Liverpool. Basically, to sum up, while some of the rest of us might go, crikey, you're 22 points clear, you can afford to t- at least turn up as manager, but maybe even use one or two players. For Liverpool fans, this is the only thing that counts the league, and it doesn't matter yeah. what happens as long as the league title is sorted. Yeah. I mean, other things, I, th- I think it was a similar attitude last season as well, until Champions League came sort of to the rescue. But even right. last season, I don't think Liverpool fans were particularly excited about the Champions League until until the 3-1 win in Munich. And then everyone went, whoa, we're very close to the Champions League here as well. And then it helped make that season success. So if you look at the, in, in this situation here, I think Liverpool, of course, will go for the Champions League again. But the league has been an obsession for 30 years. No Liverpool fan, I think, would come out and go, oh, yes, we'll have to respect the FA Cup. Because the only thing everyone thinks about is the league. Fair play to Liverpool for at least pricing the game sensibly. £15 for adults, uh, 11.50 over 65, £5 for young adults, a pound for juniors. So, right. At least they're they're not trying to gouge the supporters. Although, as you say, what had seemed like a money-spinning replay for Shrewsbury is fast uh, looking like something quite different. Yeah, well, they they claim that they're going to get enough money to buy proper video analysis equipment and um, improve their training ground exponentially, so it works for them too. I still think for Shrewsbury, it's quite a big windfall. Uh, and I think even sensibly, I mean, how much more Liverpool could have charged for the game? I mean, if looking at Liverpool ticket pricing history, mm. uh, you know, I, don't, I think even if they, if they charged 25, for example, for this game against Shrewsbury, I don't think the fans would have been very happy, to be honest. Uh, Newcastle, as we mentioned, going to Oxford. Sean Saunders says, can you explain how Newcastle are so awful and yet sit comfortably mid-table with only four goals all season from attackers? Well, no. No. no, no. Well, no, part of the reason, no. part of the explanation, part one is everybody else. I think you know the fact that there there are other teams that, or well, there aren't other teams who have been putting together consistent runs. But it, it's quite a good season to be a mediocre Premier League team because you can get away with it to an extent that you might not have been able to do in previous seasons. They have goal scoring defenders, which helps mm. as well. They've they've scored half the goals, haven't they? I wonder if Danny Rose might chip in with a few if he can find a decent chippy. Do you think yeah, nice. Do you think uh, he will uh, he'll be featuring in this game? And and what of the Oxford uh, side given that they've just uh, 
lost two of their best players, no, on transfer deadline day. Yeah, they have, yeah. Um, friend of the Totally Football League show and uh, Oxford supporter Simon Watts has, has clued me up on this. Shandon Baptiste and Tarek Fosu both going to, to Brentford late in the in the transfer window. Um, both key players, but but Oxford don't own their ground. And, and you might remember the Kassam Stadium. It's this weird three-sided Ooh, stadium. The car so, park. Yeah, they, they, they don't have a great amount of revenue coming in. They have to sell players. They've done it successfully in recent years. Think of likes of Kimar Roof and fancy Premier League's John Lundstrom uh, was playing for Oxford. So this is just a necessary part of their business model, unfortunately, but it's not great for Carl Robinson, who's already complained about having to play nine games in February. He's trying to engineer promotion from League One and and has this another opportunity to face a Premier League side against whom they've impressed already this season. And, and yeah, he loses loses two of his key players. But this is what happens when you're a, a smallish size club for League One you know it's just the the business of football unfortunately mm. 90 minutes possibly longer then on Tuesday who knows what might happen for Carl Robinson and the U's that's on Tuesday very shortly we'll be looking at some of the big headlines from around the European football weekend why Neymar got booked for being flash and that kind of thing right now though let's hear from producer Ben and Paddy Power Good morning, everybody. Producer Ben here on the line with Lee Price from Paddy Power. Lee, let's look ahead to the FA Cup fourth round replays this week. Oxford, they're taking on Newcastle. Can they knock out the Magpies? Hmm. Oxford hadn't been on a great run prior to visiting St James's Park, but they followed that draw of a league win, which keeps them in the playoff hunt. So they're 5-2 to two to win this one, although they have gone out of two other cup competitions, the League Cup and the Football League Trophy at the Kassam. As for Newcastle, they followed that first match of another goalless draw, their lucky home fans, and the Magpies are evens to win this one. A draw, and the lottery that follows, is 12-5. to All right, they're moving on. Jose Mourinho loves winning silverware, but if he's going to do it at Spurs, they've got to find a way past Southampton. Is that going to happen? Far from it for me to upset advert royalty such as Jose Mourinho, but we only make Tottenham fifth favourites to win the FA Cup at 17-2. to That's behind City, Chelsea, United and Leicester and ahead of Liverpool with their commitment to the competition somewhat in question. Not by me, I hasten to add. As for this game though, we think the Spurs will progress. It's 4-6, to six, odds on they go through. Southampton 7-2 to, to win this match. The draw is 11-4. to four. And finally, Shrewsbury have got themselves a replay at Anfield. Jurgen Klopp won't be there. None of the first team will be there. What's that done to the odds? <laughs> we actually make it odds on that Jurgen Klopp visibly attends this match perhaps a well-advised PR exercise we do make his Liverpool reserves favourite to win the game of course but they're not odds on to do so for the first time in what feels like forever although it was actually just December in the League Cup game against Villa the champions elect are even to win this game Shrewsbury are just 2-1 to one to win at Anfield a draw is 11-4 to four. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time. Recording is over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Tuesday, we'll be bringing you the European edition of the Totally Football Show that's up pretty much from dawn on Tuesday. Among the many exciting things we can be discussing in that one, a Maldini on the pitch for Milan. Daniel Maldini. The legacy continues. Also... Erling Haaland continuing as well. He got another brace this weekend. Insane. Dortmund with another five-goal haul. I also was quite impressed with his builder play as well. He looks like he's taking duck to water. I mean, they battered a very poor union team, Union, 
uh, team and it was 5-0 but his whole build the play the way he's linking up with the likes of Royce and Sancho it's very very impressive for some guy for a guy who just landed there basically yeah yeah. so 7 goals so far in less than 2 whole games of, of playing oh, well, time yeah, it's of, of playing time yeah yeah insane so 5 goals for PSG as well plucky PSG getting the 5-0 win against Montpellier but angry scenes Tom Williams Yes, angry scenes involving both of PSG's superstars, uh, Neymar and Kylian Mbappe. Neymar, who has been absolutely flying the last few weeks, he's been in the best form I think I've ever seen him, um, took an absolute kicking from what is quite a rugged Montpellier team. Um, and there was a curious incident, I think it was in the first half, where he he tried to pull off like a rainbow flick over a couple of defenders, which didn't come off. The ball went out for a throw-in. And then he had a conversation with the referee. The referee appears to call him over and say, hey... Stop that. Yeah, stop provoking them. Cool it. And Neymar reacts angrily. But as I think he's saying, perfectly don't, entitled don't, don't to. do that flamboyant It, it seems to be that he was saying, stop winding up the opposition. Right. Neymar responds by saying, well, hang on, this is how I play. Like, you yeah. know, I'm just trying to play my football. And gets, gets a booking for dissent. After the game, Presnel Kimpembe, who spoke in the mix zone, said that the referee had explained that he'd actually booked Neymar for trying to wind up Montpellier's players, which is absolutely ludicrous. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel there's probably going to be more to How come much from of this, this was his pink haircut? Well, you think it's it's made him even more of a target or made him even more... I'm not sure. It's I mean, provocative. It is provocative. Um, but that's insane, Tom. So has there been an outcry against this referee, this this puritanical killjoy official? Yeah, there has. I mean, on sort of French football Twitter, um, for once sort of almost unanimous backing for Neymar because while he might be a slightly annoying guy to be playing against, you cannot, you know, you can't, you can't be telling a player like that not to express himself in the way that he was. Um, Neymar furiously storms off the pitch at half-time and starts having a pop at the fourth official in Portuguese. The fourth official replies, speak French, rather snootily, mm. and Neymar responds in French, parle français mon cul. Speak right. French, my ass, <laughs> yeah. which I thought was a very elegant way of dealing with it. Worth noting also, Kylian Mbappe withdrawn with about 20 minutes to play and had um, the latest in what has become a bit of mini succession of confrontations with Thomas Tuchel. I mean, Mbappe wants to be treated like Messi and Ronaldo. He wants to be left on the pitch until the last minute of every single game. At this point in the game, PSG, uh, home and hose, Montpellier have given up the ghost. There is space. There are goals to be had. Mbappe know that there is some stat padding to be done um, and, and has this, this quite prolonged and quite heated conversation with Thomas Tuchel. I mean, Thomas Tuchel is, is trying to keep happy a dressing room that is full of, of big egos. He's yeah. bringing on Icardi for Mbappe at that time. And I think he's also trying to show that he is he is boss, but it's, it's not the first time it's happened and it, it's not a great look. No, no. And, and indeed, the way it looks is, is kind of worrying If you, for a club with the history of, of the uh, power plays between players and a manager because Tuchel's there almost imploring Mbappe not to cause a scene and for, for some time and Mbappe just kind of storms off after a bit. Yeah, and it's a proper power play because, I mean, Mbappe's obviously annoyed. Every striker who gets taken off before the end of a game when he thinks there are more goals to be had is going to be annoyed. Tuchel could just let him walk past him and, and go and take his seat on the bench, but he decides to go and confront him, put his hands, like, you know, on either side of his face and sort of try and talk to him and calm him down unsuccessfully. So, yeah, an interesting one. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything really uh, profound beyond it, but odd and I, this is perhaps well, also a reflection of the fact that the league untitled is once again an absolute cakewalk for PSG but here we are after a very breezy 5-0 win and we're talking about Neymar kicking off on with the officials and Mbappe kicking off on his own manager what some people do see behind it is perhaps the kind of first steps towards the summer transfer that 
Mbappe or his people might wish to see towards certain pastures. Iberian. Iberian. So all the Liverpool fans are trying to start this, uh, I think, flash mob of Mbappe to Liverpool. But I yeah, think well. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Speaking of... Uh, Officials involved in uh, foreign scenes of footballing madness. How about that second division clash between Hirona and help me out here, Matt Davis Adams? <laughs> Hirona and Fuenlabrada. Okay, that'll do. Yeah. So you may have seen this, listener. If you haven't, you need to seek it out because it's extraordinary. Player is sent off and heads down the tunnel. Uh, VAR is then uh, used in, in the second division. In the second division. And rescinds the red card. So this is a kind of an awkward pause. Well, somebody runs down the tunnel, finds the player who was sent off. Cristobal Marquez. It was. Who then comes back on. And then what happens, Matt? And he goes and finds the person with whom he's been agitating. He says, hey, it's me again. I'm back. And gets straight back into it and gets sent off again immediately. And this and, um, time for good. I mean, it's a glorious act of idiocy, isn't it? It's it's kind of what we're all here for in football. Just that kind of boneheadedness. Um, delightful. Love to see it. Sasha, angry Frenchman in Germany. Oh, uh, RB Leipzig against Gladbach. Uh, obviously, top of the table clash. Um, Gladbach basically pressed the hell out of Leipzig in the first half, two 0 up. And in the second half, Jan Sommer drops the ball, uh, literally, and it's two one. And then Alassane Player, who scored the opener, player, st- player, starts screaming about some decision in the middle of the park. A ref comes over, books him. Uh, he says something else to the referee. Ref books him again. He's off. And uh, eventually Leipzig uh, equalised, I think, in the penultimate minute of the game. And uh, while they're all fighting it out, Bayern go back top. So potential crucial game in the uh, German title race gets decided by a French bloke screaming in the middle of the pitch. That's magnificent. We'll hear more about that in Tuesday's Totally Football Show, courtesy of Raphael Honigstein. Tuesday also, we'll see a new episode of the Totally Scottish Football Show in which uh, they'll be discussing how Celtic and how seven points clear... In Scotland, Rangers drawing at home to Aberdeen. Uh, Toby, Football League shows out on Wednesday. Matt, you in charge again this time? Certainly am, yeah. Basically, what, what we'll you got be uh, undoing everything that we said last week when we said, oh, Leeds are over their blip now because they beat Millwall and Forrest have got a chance of uh, crashing the top two because they beat Brentford. Fast forward a couple of days, Leeds lose at home to Wigan and uh, Forrest lose at Birmingham and Brentford win 5-1 away because... The championship. Uh, we might also make reference, and you might do this on Tuesday too, to Anthony Robinson of Wigan's failed move to AC Milan. Uh, the poor lad was taken on a private jet to Milan only to get off said jet and be told that the transfer had been cancelled. He was amongst the Wigan supporters at Ellen Road oh. on Saturday watching his team and his boss Paul Cook said that he's going to get a move to a big club. Uh, Paul Cook also said, I was absolutely devastated because I was hoping that Paolo Maldini was going to phone me, but he didn't. The club's officials did it between themselves, so he missed out on a call from Maldini. This time anyway. Mm. All right. Matt, just to finish off, your busy Sunday also involved uh, another absolutely huge game, this one in the WSL, as uh, first came up against second Man City taking on Arsenal. Yeah, almost too much narrative in this game. So they'd met in the League Cup semi-final on Wednesday night at Arsenal. Arsenal won that game 2-1. Uh-huh. Manchester City were, were really disappointing. So it's Arsenal-Chelsea in the League Cup final uh, at the end of this month. But yeah, going into the game, <laughs> they were level on points, Arsenal and City. There was one goal separating them in terms of goal difference. And this is the last game uh, that City coach 
uh, Nick Cushing was in charge of before he goes off to be assistant to Ronnie Dyler at New York FC. I mean, right? is that an upgrade? I'm not sure. Uh, but they won the game anyway, City. Uh, 2-1 thanks to goals from Pauline Bremer and Lauren Hemp. It was a really high-quality second half. Arsenal pulled one back through uh, Danny van der Donk. Always nice to say her name. Uh, but the real winners probably were Chelsea. I mean, they wallop West Ham 8-0 and it means that the situation at the top of the WSL table City leading the way they're a point clear of Chelsea but Chelsea have got a game in hand on them and now a far superior goal difference and Arsenal have slipped back to third and because it's so tight between these three uh, Arsenal have lost both games against Chelsea and they've lost this one against Manchester City we could look back at the end of the season and say that's where they lost the title that's how significant this game was that 8-0 for Chelsea against West Ham came without Sam Kerr as well yeah she's on uh, international duty but Beth England who's having an absolutely monumental season amongst the goals again uh, as was 16 year old Emily Murphy which uh, if that doesn't make you feel bad about your life I don't know what will because I'm 37 and I've never scored a goal in a professional football game and it's looking unlikely that I will at this point anything else we should know about this week Sasha I'd just like to mention uh, Danny Ings okay. uh, and Liverpool uh, because after the game at Anfield, uh, in which there were some, you know, moments surrounding Inks. He was on the pitch, and a lot of Liverpool players and um, Jurgen Klopp came up to him, gave him a hug, had a proper chat with the guy. You know, Van Dijk came over, and then Trent Alexander Arnold. And it's just nice to see because um, I think Inks was very unlucky at Liverpool. Two really terrible injuries just didn't quite work out for him. Uh, I love the fact that he's doing so well at Southampton this season, and it's good to see that sort of affection between former colleagues. That's nice, isn't it? Nice wholesome note to end the yeah. show. Yeah, good for you, Sasha. Brilliant. Alrighty, that's where we wrap this Totally Football show. Many thanks to Matt, Tom, and Sasha for being with us, and you, listener. We will return as previously mentioned. Do hope you have a super time and join us again. Then, for now, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. of the Totally Scottish Football Show and if you like football you're gonna love Scottish football it's not all just Stevie G and Scott Brown up here no because we talk about all of the Scottish football and geez oh it's great there's actually a title race this year in the Premiership Stevie G will be hoping not to slip up again Hearts are tearing each other a new one Motherwell are doing well well they're doing well so if you like your football to be competitive have a title race and a ton of drama off and on the pitch the totally scottish football show is most definitely for you grab scottish football by the boys just like ryan christie did and listen to the totally scottish football show available everywhere even in england muddy knees media